0: up to um, Hebrews chapter 8. Now, you should have gotten, as you came in, kind of a, uh, a handout uh, among the other fistful of stuff we gave you this morning, a handout on Hebrews chapter 7. Um, you know, somebody said once upon a time, if you can't convince them, confuse them. And I think I may have succeeded in confusing a few of you last week. Uh, as we walk through Hebrews chapter 7, talking about Melchizedek, uh, it is a hard chapter to get your arms around, and it is uh, hard to, uh, to maybe follow as somebody's trying to explain it to you. Um, I'm not sure I did the greatest job in the world explaining, but in any case, um, there's another attempt to explain and clarify uh, what the scriptures are saying there and why it matters. Uh, so if you uh, didn't get one of those, see me afterwards, I'll get you a copy. Uh, we'll cl- uh, I just want to be sure that when we go through the Word together, you know, my objective is never that people leave going, what was that? I really didn't get it. Um, but this is part of what uh, he- the writer of Hebrews tells us earlier in the book, is the meat of the Word. And so if it takes us a while to chew on it, that's Okay. Uh, but I don't want to leave anybody without an understanding of what it's about. So uh, so hopefully, if there if you were confused last week, you can read through that and uh, be less confused this week as we look at Hebrews chapter eight. So I do want to do that. Um, take advantage of the time we have today to look at Hebrews chapter eight and press forward into the book a little further. So if you've got your Bible there, Hebrews chapter eight verse, Uh, Verse 1 through 4 is what we're going to look at initially here. Before we do that, let me pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we know that we come to you not on the basis of works of righteousness that we have done, but only according to your mercy, which you demonstrated for us forever in Jesus Christ. Father, it is not because uh, we are so worthy, so wonderfully special, so um, abundantly, obviously worthy of your love that you love us, but you love us because that is the kind of God that you are. You are a God of love and care for the creatures that you have made. And you came into the world by your Son to save sinners and to bring us back into relationship with with you. Father, we pray that you would remove whatever blinders we have to seeing and hearing your word. Help us to, uh, to understand what the word says and to put it into practice and to have our lives changed by it. And Father, I pray that uh, you would speak through me as well this morning. Help me to be clear in explaining what you have so beautifully written for us here in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, and in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if we were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Now, I love how verse 1 begins. Uh, Now, the point of what we're saying is this. Uh, I think that the author knows that... His original readers, just like many of you last week, uh, might not understand the argument in chapter 7 in, in its entirety. And you might go, I don't get it. All this about Melchizedek and Aaron and Levi, and I'm confused. He says, let me boil it down for you. This is the point. And the point is, is that we have Jesus as our high priest. Now that Jesus has come, has died on the cross for sin, and been raised from the dead to give us new life, we now have Jesus as our high priest, and he is a better priest than any priest that has ever functioned here on earth. And he gives us several reasons why Jesus is better. And one of the reasons is that Jesus, as our priest, is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's a, that's a very Jewish way of speaking. You never use uh, God's name directly as a pious Jew, and so you use a, a, a euphemistic term. And you talk about the majesty, or Matthew, when instead of talking about the kingdom of God, he talks about the kingdom of heaven, because Matthew is written to Jewish people in hopes that they will hear about Jesus and believe in him. Uh, and he says, Jesus is seated here at the right hand of God the Father in his presence. And you need to underline in your Bible, if, you, if you're accustomed to writing in your Bible, it's not a, not a sin, by the way, you can do that. Um, underline the fact that he is seated in heaven. That matters. Because Old Testament priests never, let me underline this for you, Never sat down. And there was no provision made in either the tabernacle or the temple for them ever to sit. Some of you were here when we went through the book of Exodus and you remember going through all this stuff about how the tabernacle was constructed and all of the... All of the posts and, and screens and coverings and altars and basins and the ark and the lamp and the table and all this stuff. And they've got all this stuff, even a table with food on it. But there, you know what there's, there's not any of is chairs, Because you ate standing up, you offered sacrifice standing up, you burned incense standing up, you washed yourself standing up, and the reason was to underline for the priests, as well as all of the people, that this is a temporary cleansing. And the work of these priests is never accomplished, it's never finished, it's never done, and so they can never rest. As long as they are in the temple ministering, they had to stand because their work was never finished. And sitting down is when you're at rest, right? When you come home, when you come home from work after a long day, especially if you work outside for a living or you work with your hands, you spend all day on your feet. Maybe you wear a uniform to work. You come home, you strip off all of that stuff. Maybe take a shower. You put on a t-shirt, maybe some sweatpants or some shorts. And what do you do? You sit down, and you go. And, there, and there's, often a, a, there's often an involuntary noise that comes out. Right? Like you sit down, and it's like ah. You know what that sound is? That's the sound of rest. <laughs> right there, right? That you can finally rest because your work is done. And Jesus is seated in the presence of God because his work as our priest is in some sense done. He has already offered the final sacrifice. And he does not need to offer another one. And so he is seated in the presence of of God. In fact, if you want to see, um, see where Jesus' work was, it was um, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. So just go back a few verses. He has no need, like those high priests, offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. In other words, there's not a need for ongoing daily sacrifice. It's done. It's once for all. It's complete. And he sits in God's presence at his right hand, which is a Hebrew way of saying that he is, at this moment, reigning with God. That he is no longer serving, he is now reigning with God meaning he has a status no Old Testament priest could claim. Old Testament priest was a high-ranking person. In fact, he was perhaps the most important person in all of the nation of Israel, but he was not in any sense equal with God. And yet, over and over, what the Scripture tells us about Jesus is that as the Son of God he is god equal with god he has a status that is unique and, and in addition to that verse 2 tells us that jesus is the minister in the true tent and the language that he's using here is to refer, is a reference and an allusion to the tabernacle The tent, it was the tent that the the Hebrews carried around in the desert as they were wandering around before they went into the land of Canaan and took the land under Joshua. They had this portable structure that they carried around called the tabernacle that they met with God and they carried on sacrifices and so forth. And, And to say that Jesus ministers in the true tent is to say that when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, and he was, thr- he was shown the heavenly throne room, and he was told, and, and verse 5 actually clears this up for us here in, in this chapter, that he was, Moses is shown the heavenly throne room. And he says, make a copy of this, Moses. Only make it this way so that it's portable. But it's a copy, and what he's saying is Jesus, as our high priest, serves in the true thing of which the tabernacle was just a copy. Jesus is actually serving in the presence of God that the tabernacle was built in imitation of. And the point is that, is that Jesus is the true and original priest, the original model who ministers in God's presence in heaven, and that the Levitical priesthood and the tabernacle and the temple, all the stuff that Moses told people to do, were just imitations and copies. And Jesus is the true priest. He's the real priest in the real sanctuary. And everything in the Old Testament was just meant as a way of imitating what Jesus already is. And number three, according to verse three, Jesus offers a better sacrifice. It tells us, if you look at the text here, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, meaning Jesus, to have something to offer. Well, what did he offer? Well, look again back at chapter seven, verse 27. He offered himself offered himself. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't an animal of some kind. You know, you have all these regulations. If you read Leviticus, which I recommend just so that you have a, an appreciation and an understanding of, of the significance of Jesus' sacrifice, the animal sacrifice system was very complicated, you had to offer this kind of sacrifice at this time and this kind of sacrifice at this time and this sacrifice under this circumstance and this one under that one. And it was a very complicated, horrible uh, to understand system. And you read it and you go, Whoa. right? Uh, that's why I say that Leviticus is where Bible reading through the year, uh, th- you know, read your Bible through the, uh, through in one year plans go to die is Leviticus, Right? Uh, if you make it through there, they die in Chronicles, right? (laughs) But but, uh, I encourage you to read your Bible. But if you read Leviticus and you read about all these kinds of sacrifice, what you find out is, oh my gosh, these guys were working all the time offering sacrifices. Trying to maintain the relationship of people uh, between them and God. Every high priest had to offer a sacrifice but this one offered the final sacrifice the best sacrifice the only sacrifice that was needed and he didn't offer an animal he offered up himself Now if you should look at verse 4 it's not a it's not a, it's not exactly another reason why Jesus is a better priest but it does point out that if Jesus were still here on earth that he could not be a priest Well, why not? Well, because at the time that Hebrews is written, the temple was still standing, and there were still qualified Levite priests offering sacrifices to God in it. And Jesus, according to his human nature, was descended from David of the tribe of Judah, and you had to be a Levite under the law to offer sacrifices there. But as the author is about to tell us, that fact should not trouble us. Because those priests and their covenant and their worship is obsolete. And it's about to come to an end. It's just about to come to an end. So look at, look at uh, verses 5 through 7 here with me, will you? Read along. To look for a second. Now, men, let me ask you a question: If you had a choice, would you rather have right now a photograph of a steak dinner, or the real thing right in front of you? Anybody voting for the photograph? Just curious. All right, all right. Now, ladies, would you rather have drugstore chocolate? Or something in a gold box that says Godiva across the lid? (laughs) Okay. All right. I understand that even bad chocolate is still pretty good chocolate. Okay. However, given a choice, most of us would rather have the real thing. We would rather have... Those Belgian brothers and sisters over across the ocean make us something that comes in a gold box, that when you open it and eat some, every fat cell in your body breaks forth into the hallelujah chorus, right? (laughs) Um, You would rather have that. You would rather have the actual ribeye, not just a photograph, right? You would. Uh, Photographs can be nice. You know, they can be artistic and so forth. Uh, you can hang them on the wall, and they look good. Make a good advertising copy, maybe. But they're not tasty. They're just copies of the real thing. And in the same way, it's not that the old covenant that the Levites and the priests all served under was necessarily bad. It's just that it was a copy of the real thing. It was just a copy and a shadow of the real thing that we now possess in Christ. Moses built a tabernacle as a shadow and a copy and an imitation of the heavenly sanctuary. And the ministry of the Old Testament priest was a foreshadowing of the ministry of the true high priest, the Son of God. It was just foreshadowing. It was anticipatory. It looked forward to the coming of the real priest who would fulfill all the things that these guys were doing in imitation of Christ who was to come. And if you look at verses 6 and 7, look closely with me here. You find out that Jesus' ministry is better because his priesthood, the covenant that his priesthood mediates, is better. It's the new covenant. It was the one predicted by Jeremiah 700 years prior to Jesus. It makes better promises than the old covenant of the law. And the new covenant achieves where the old covenant fell short. And that's the point of verse 7. If the Old Covenant worked to bring people close to God, there would have been no need for another one. But it didn't work. The people violated it even while it was being given. You remember? Moses is getting the law on Mount Sinai. He's standing there meeting face to face with God. God is giving them the stone tablets to carry down to the mountain to the foot of it. When he gets to the foot of it, he hears sounds of stuff going on in the camp. And he he gets down there and he finds out that while he is receiving the law of God, the first one of which is, you shall have no other gods before me. They have made themselves a golden calf idol and are having a drunken orgy around it. And he breaks the tablets. And eventually they have to go through this elaborate process of being judged by God and trying somehow to come back into repentance. And in fact, even though they repent and God eventually takes them into the land of Israel and they they take over and things are great for a while, but do you know what happens? Again, this is why you need to read through your Bible in a year and read Chronicles. You find out that they have these cycles of disobedience and, and, and obedience. And bad kings that follow good kings. And then good kings that try to pull everybody back to repentance and to following God. But with, when that good king dies, a lot of times he's followed by someone who's worse. You know, you had, you had good King Josiah at the end of the nation of Judah's uh, history. He was the last good king of Judah, and he was a tremendous fellow. He became king at eight years old, and he was the, probably the best king they had had since David. He reinstitutes the celebration of the Passover, and he, he gets rid of all of the high places where the people would worship pagan gods, and he, re, he cleanses the temple, and he restores the temple worship to the place it's supposed to have, and then he dies, and his son Manasseh is one of the worst kings that ever ruled the nation of Judah, and they had all these commands. 613 laws if you want to count them all up different things that you could and could not do Things that you were required to do things you were prohibited from doing Any of y'all wear a cotton polyester shirt today? You mix two kinds of fabric. You're prohibited under the law from doing that Any of y'all like shrimp? Lobster catfish couldn't eat it Barbecued ribs. No no bacon for you. Okay, you couldn't have that forbidden right and they had all these laws and it was was meant to bring people into relationship with God it was meant to make them distinct from all the other nations around them and they had laws that governed everything from sanitation practices to food to clothing to how your hair had to be cut to every aspect of life and it failed because after they had had enough bad kings in a row, they never, ever came back to the Lord again. And they went into exile as a result of their rebellion and disobedience to God. And God said, you're going to be there 70 years because for, seven, for 70 years, for 77s, every seven years you're supposed to give the Sabbath Rest to the land, because the land belonged to God. It was a gift from Him. He says, so, and He didn't do it for 490 years. So we're gonna get back rest for the land. All of the all of the Sabbath years you didn't keep, those will be the years you get to spend in exile. And they were exiled because the law could not achieve its purpose of bringing people close to God because they continually rebelled against him. And so God, through Jeremiah, even as the nation is going into exile, promises them that one day he's going to establish with them a better covenant, a new covenant. And it's going to have better promises. And it's going to work to bring people close to God. And in fact, he quotes that in verses 8 through 12 and then on into verse 13. He gives us a little commentary on it. So I want to read those verses with you. Jesus established the new covenant that Jeremiah promised. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days. obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now this whole section here, most of it, uh, all of it that's set off there um, uh, about halfway through verse 8 all the way through verse 12 is from Jeremiah chapter 31. And Jeremiah, as I said, prophesied three, uh, about 700 years prior to Jesus, right before the nation is carted off into exile. And the people are worshiping all kinds of false gods. Actually, it's not 700 years. I'm sorry. It's about 600 years. Um, Got to do math right. Math is hard. All right? Uh, it's about 600 years prior to Jesus. And the people are living in violation of every single one of the Ten Commandments, from you shall have no other gods before me, to you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, uh, etc. They're living in violation of every single one of these. For, ever, for over 40 years, Jeremiah preaches and tells them, if you don't repent, judgment is coming. 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 And he has, I think, a total of two people who repent, his wife and his disciple, Baruch, who writes uh, Jeremiah's prophecies down for him. Two people, whole nation, 40 years. This is not what every pastor prays will be the outcome of his ministry, all right? That in 40 years, I'll get two people, one of which is my wife, (laughs) to believe what I say, all right? This is not a good scenario. And yet, the people ignore everything Jeremiah has to say. And they go into exile, just like God said. In fact, God had told him before Jeremiah even got there, he had told him through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, which, again, you ought to read. Deuteronomy has a long section about blessings and curses. And it was designed, in fact, for six of the tribes... He said, when you get into the land, I want you to repeat these sections. He said, I want, I want six tribes to stand on Mount Ebal and six to stand on Mount Gerizim and to shout them back and forth, which they did when they got into the land. They actually did this. And, and Mount Gerizim is the mountain of blessings. And it's green and beautiful and oh, it's lush and has all kinds of stuff growing on it. Mount Ebal uh, looks a lot like the top of my head. All right. There's nothing growing there. It's just flat, desolate landscape. And it's the curses of Deuteronomy. And on the one hand, you've got and If you obey the Lord, you will be blessed in the city and you will be blessed in the country and you will be blessed in your fields and you will be blessed in your houses. You will have blessings on your crops and on your vineyards and on your flocks and you will be blessed in your, with your wives who will bear you many children. That's a blessing, by the way. And then on the other side, he would scream across this valley the curses for disobedience. Cursed will you be in the country. And cursed will you be in the city. And cursed will be your flocks. And cursed will be your crops. And cursed will be your herds. And cursed will be your houses. And cursed will be your womb. And the poverty will be so intense and the and the siege of the invading army so bad that a pregnant woman when she bears her child will fight her children and her husband for the afterbirth of the baby. That's in the Bible. Because you rebelled against me. And Jeremiah is preaching at a time when that Is coming to fruition, where all of the curses that Moses told them would happen if they rebelled against God are happening. But in the midst of that, he has this beautiful chapter, chapter 31, where he promises a new covenant. And he gives the people hope that when you come back from exile, things are going to be better, and they're going to be better one day because God is going to make a new covenant, and he's going to not simply require you to obey, he's going to enable you to obey. Look at at these verses here with me. The old covenant was inadequate. It was faulty in that it couldn't, produce obedient people. That's what he says when he says he finds fault when he offers a new covenant. If the old covenant was perfectly fine, they wouldn't, God would not have said, well, I need to make a new covenant with you people. It didn't produce obedient people. They disobeyed it and God's punishment came on them. Now look at verses 10 to 12 tell us what the new covenant is going to be like. The law of God won't be written on stone tablets anymore. It'll be written on the hearts and minds of every one of God's people. It will be in their mind instead of being stored in the Ark of the Covenant. God will be their God, and they will be his people. And God's people will not any longer need to exhort one another to know the Lord because the knowledge of God will spread to every one of His people, whether they are famous and powerful or whether they are small and weak. And instead of punishing His people for their sin, they will have forgiveness and restoration of relationship. How will all that happen? Those are the promises. How is all that going to happen? Jeremiah doesn't tell us directly, but the prophet Joel did. Do you remember? He said that in the last days, God would pour out the Holy Spirit. And at the coming of the Spirit, when Jesus ascended into heaven, would mean that Jesus would take on his role as our high priest. And we have received, therefore, through Jesus, the new covenant. And we have a better way of relating to God, as the Spirit of God enables and empowers our obedience to the requirements of a holy God. See, the new covenant is based on the fact that when Jesus came as high priest, the Holy Spirit came to enable us to do what the covenant required and demanded and promised. That we, therefore, have a better way of obeying God. Not simply by saying, well, the law says this, I need to do that. And if I mess up, I need to offer sacrifice for myself. Jesus came and offered the sacrifice of himself for us. So that we don't need to offer sacrifice for ourselves anymore. And he sent the Spirit to bring us close to him and to transform us from the inside out. What the law tries to do is to transform people from the outside in, and that doesn't work. What the new covenant does is moves God out of the temple and into us so that we are able to be transformed by his presence within us. Amen. Now look at verse 13. When Hebrews is written, the temple was still standing and the Levites were still ministering in it. But it was obsolete even then because Jesus had already come and the new covenant had already been given and the spirit had already been sent out. And so all that was left was for the temple and its worship to finally be destroyed. And it was in 70 AD. And the reason was That the real thing had come, and therefore the shadow passed away. Now, what's the point of this? The point is this that we live under the new covenant that Jesus established, and that reality ought to change several things for us. First thing it ought to change is that we need to know and live in, re- in light of the fact that we don't live under the law anymore. We don't live under the law anymore. And I know that very few of us in this room have Jewish heritage, and so going back to the Mosaic law and you know, offering a goat to, to, as a payment for your sin is probably not a big temptation for you. But nonetheless... Nonetheless you would be surprised how many people receive Christianity they come to come to faith in Christ by grace through faith in the savior and yet they try to live their Christian life by the law they try to they try to work really hard and obey what God commands and they go, well, well, the Bible says this, so I just need to do that. And I just need, if I'm failing, I just need to try harder. But that's not what the Scripture is telling us. When it says, I'll write the law on their hearts, it's that we get a different way of obeying. As the poet said, do this and that the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A different word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's the reality that we have. That as the Spirit has come, what we have to do is not grit our teeth harder and put forth more effort. But to rely on the Spirit to transform us in our heart so that we... Don't just try to obey. We actually want to obey what the the Lord requires of us because we have a renewed heart, not because we have better teeth by which to grit, all right? We have a new way of obedience as we rely on the Spirit to transform us. We obey not out of discipline, not out of fear, not out of uh, a desire to avoid punishment, but out of a heart that has been made new through faith in Christ. And if you've never known what what it's like to walk by the Spirit, this text is an encouragement. That we are recipients of the new covenant and therefore we can enjoy relating to God in a new way of relationship through the Spirit, um, empowered by the Spirit through the Son to the Father. It also means that we are set free from sin's penalty and we have complete forgiveness. Again, if it's not a sin to, to write in your Bible, so underline verse 10. I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. One of the things that I hear Tony say a lot of times as, as he prays is that when we come to God and we bring up something that we have confessed to him in the past as sin, he does not say to, to us, yeah, I remember. I remember back when you did that. You sorry sucker. <laughs> okay. He does not say that. He says, what does he say, Tony? What's in? What's in?" He remembers no more. And it's not that he is senile and forgetful. It's that He has paid for that sin through the death of His Son, and therefore He will not count it against us anymore. We have complete forgiveness. Remember, what the Old Covenant did, what the the priests did essentially when they offered their sacrifices was take the people's sin and sweep it under the rug and then lay it back down. Until the day when Messiah would come and offer the final sacrifice for sin. And what Jesus does, essentially, is pull back the rug, haul out all of the junk from all, of, all of, of human history up to then, as well as all the anticipatory junk of the stuff that was going to happen through you and I and our descendants, if the Lord tarries, All of the things that, all of the sins that had not yet been committed, as well as all the ones that have already been committed, and paid for them all through one sacrifice of one man, the God-Man Jesus Christ on the cross. One sin, I mean, one sacrifice for all sin, for all people, for all time. Done. And so our sins are not counted against us any more. It's paid for. It's done. And so when we come to God and we ask for forgiveness, we receive it. Amen? We get it. We are cleansed from sin. We're really clean. Body and soul. When we come to God through the sacrifice of Christ and ask for forgiveness of sin, we receive it because the penalty for our sin has already been paid. And it also means that we have complete access to God through Christ. If you study your Old Testament, one of the things that you know is that there is limited access to God. You had three courts around the temple. Um, on the on the outer courtyard, you had the um, you had the court of the Gentiles, which sorry guys, that's where all of us would have to be. And then inside that, you had the court of women, where if you were an Israelite woman, you could be. And then inside that, you had the court of Israel, where if you were an Israelite man, you could go. But you, couldn't, you could only go up to the altar. Past the altar, you couldn't go. And then if you were a priest, descended from the family of Aaron of the tribe of Levi, well, then you could go into the holy place. And you could eat of the bread of the presence on the table. You could stand in the light of the lampstand. You could burn incense on the incense altar in front of the screen. But you could go no further unless you were the high priest, in which case you could once a year with the blood of sacrifice, first for your own sin and then for the sin of the people, you could take the blood, you go behind the curtain, pour the blood on top of the mercy seat on that one day and stand in the presence of God. But we, the recipients, of the new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ can enter the presence of God any time we want any time we want it is not a limited access deal there's not a velvet rope separating where you can go as a believer in Christ and where you can't. Do you know why? Because you know someone on the inside. And you can, you can come to the throne room of God and you can say, I am with him, and you are ushered in. The presence of the living God. That is what the new covenant means. That is what it means that Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, that he is a superior priest offering a superior sacrifice that establishes a superior covenant based on superior promises that achieves a superior result in the people of God. And we have complete access to. God to the God of the universe think about that I can't get an appointment with the president they'll stop me at the gate but I can go into the presence of the king of heaven anytime I want because of Jesus Christ who died for me And so can you, if you put your trust in Christ. Amen? Let's pray, and let's enter into God's presence. God, our Heavenly Father, truly this is, as the writer of Hebrews says, the meat of the Word. Father, I pray we would chew on it a while, and then we would digest it. And that it would nourish our spiritual life. And that it would continue by your Holy Spirit's power to transform us from the inside out. Father, you have made us for yourself. And you have sent Jesus to bring us to yourself. That we might be like you in every way. That we might, as Peter says, become partakers of the divine nature. That we might share in your holiness and enjoy a relationship with you. Father, I do pray that you would help us to remember the truths that we know and the covenant we live under that we have forgiveness and access through our great high priest. And that we take advantage of that every day, several times a day, to enter into your presence And that we look forward to and enjoy and experience the transformation that you've promised. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.